This is a continuation of the series, Son of Man, Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. This is part five, Christ the Lord, from Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. This message was originally delivered at Lion and Lamb Church December 21st of 2014, and for online purposes is being re-recorded in January of 2015. Well, there's so much going on in the Christmas season that it's really easy to forget the historic and spiritual genesis of this celebration. There are school finals, school breaks, plans for weeks off and travel and relatives, food, gift buying, excesses amounts of everything, hopes for year-end bonuses, plans for next year. You get the picture. There's a lot going on. In fact, one of my favorite childhood television shows, the Charlie Brown Christmas Special, Charlie Brown is losing his patience and his peace with all that's going on in the Christmas season and in the Christmas play itself until his friend Linus turns down the house lights, quiets the scene, recites a classic nativity narrative from Luke's Gospel, Chapter 2. And that's where we'll spend our time this morning. I hope as we do, something of the awesome reality and the value of the gift of God to the world in the person of his son comes home to us again or perhaps for us for the first time my hope for you is that you see the story unfold in your mind's eyes that we haven't merely heard a text but we've seen the images God has taken the time to relay to us this is the text from Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 20 and I'm reading from the ESV In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, 
glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Well, God is in the details, and as Luke gives us the narrative of Jesus' birth account, he fills it in with details. He tells us, for instance, that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered, and he tells us or identifies which census this was when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Luke gives us the kind of details and attention to detail that come from a thoroughly researched account. Luke takes pains to fix the story of Jesus' birth by geography as well as political figures and events like this census. There's some modern dispute today over the timing of this census and the place and time Luke fix it, but that concern lacks corroborating evidence. There are valid arguments which show how Luke's details may fit in with the extant documentation we have from other places related to these times. It's also a sound policy to trust someone who has otherwise shown themselves trustworthy when their statements cannot otherwise be corroborated, and that would certainly apply to Dr. Luke. Remember that as we saw in the opening of this series, Luke is like an ace reporter. He's done the research, he's personally interviewed eyewitnesses, and that's what he's relating to us in the account of Jesus' birth. Now we know that Augustus was the Caesar, or the king, of the Roman Empire from 27 BC until 14 AD, and it's his reign that instituted what historians would later call the Peace of Rome or the Pax Romana. And it's interesting that during the Peace of Rome, the Prince of Peace, Jesus, Christ the Lord, would be born the one who would ultimately displace the last of human empire to institute his own eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God, a place where peace would abound. Isn't it interesting, too, that Caesar... The king, this man of immense power on the earth, would unknowingly assure that his ultimate replacement, Jesus the Messiah, his birth would occur in the town God said it would occur. Because apart from Caesar's census and the decree that he gave with it, Mary and Joseph would have no reason to trek down to Bethlehem while she is uncomfortably great with child. But God had predicted in Micah 6, verse 2, that Messiah would be born in the little town in the south of Judah called Bethlehem, Ephrata. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So wrote the prophet Micah about 700 years earlier. Caesar was the most powerful man on earth, and he was pursuing his own agenda in providing administrative oversight and just the simple ability to tax and tax well the populations under his control in the Roman Empire. He wasn't trying to accommodate the God of the Jews and the birth of the Messiah, but unknowingly he was. His unintended consequence was to be part of God's eternal program in bringing Christ the Lord into this world in the city of his great earthly ancestor, the shepherd king, King David. 
interesting too that later at the end of Jesus' life, Roman and Jewish authorities would again fulfill God's divine design. They were seeking to rid themselves of this pesky problem, this prophet from Nazareth, Jesus. But by doing so, they were again fulfilling God's good plan foretold in Psalm 2 and Isaiah 52 and 53. And the early church would mention that specifically in Acts chapter 4. I mean, think of this. The Roman soldier who, with his lance, pierced Jesus' side, was simply doing the duty of a good soldier at an execution. He was assuring that Jesus was dead, but he didn't know that his act was forewritten by God 800 years earlier in Isaiah 53, 5, where the text says, He was pierced for our transgressions. Friends, we need to remember that God uses humanity from the least to the greatest to advance his own cause, purpose, and will. Caesar had no idea that his tax policy and census were fulfilling God's divine design, but they were. From the seats of greatest power to the lowliest occupations, our God rules. Perhaps you're struck as I am when I read something like the birth of Jesus, or frankly, for that, his crucifixion as well. And it has to do with this. These momentous accounts, these momentous points of time in the history of the world are spoken with so little fanfare, so briefly and so succinctly. Verse 6 there says, While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. If you're like me, I want to draw these kinds of moments out. I want to turn them over in my mind. I want to be able to appreciate them. And yet, when you read Luke's account regarding the conception of Jesus or his birth, later his crucifixion, the texts are remarkably short. They are, in fact, almost anti climactic, but their brevity, their directness, does not mean we should underestimate their value. Along with chapter 1, verse 35, regarding the conception of Jesus Christ the Lord, this brief description in verse 6 and 7 of his birth is really part of the profound mystery, really the unimaginable, the humbling of God the Son as he left the glory of heaven, and took on our humanity. I mean, this brief verse is describing for us the means whereby the one that existed in eternity past somehow now in his birth and conception entered time. One who was formerly unbound by time entered time. Or eyes that beheld the glories of the triune God before the conception, incarnation, and birth now open in this moment of birth to look at the world he himself had created, seen now through the eyes of an infant, or the voice that spoke the worlds into existence now coos and cries. This is hard, hard to fathom. God the Son has come as the Son of God, Christ the Lord. He's humbled himself beyond comprehension to glorify the Father by becoming your Savior and mine. In the announcement of Jesus' birth, God's promise to Israel 800 years earlier was realized from Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah there wrote, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name 
shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, Fairly well-known author, uh, known for his literature as much as his use of biblical text, David Lyle Jeffrey has written a helpful commentary on Luke. In that commentary, Jeffrey says this, Almost all of the rich tradition of commentary sees the Incarnation as an irreducible mystery. Ordinary words fail to capture such mystery, especially the supercharged entrance of God himself into the world that he made, not as an imperial magnificence beyond imagining, but as a helpless peasant child. The paradox has proven dizzying for the most intelligent and probative of exegetes. The library of commentary on this event is massive and ripples down the centuries like a gathering stream. Here, only a tiny sample must suffice. Ambrose writes, He was a baby, a child, so that you may become a complete, mature person. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes so that you might be freed from the bonds of death. He was in a manger so that you may be on the altar. He came to earth so that you may be in the stars. He had no place in the inn so that you may have in heaven many mansions. He, being rich, became poor for your sakes that through his poverty you might become rich. People often wonder if anyone loves them. It's the cry of our heart to be known and loved. How much does Jesus love us? How much does Jesus love you? Well, enough to humble himself down into our humanity. The infinite somehow inconceivably entering the finite to come down into our mess so he can save us and raise us up. Friends, there are many, many reasons to repent of our wayward, sinful, self-centered way of living and to entrust ourselves to God. But this is right up there at the top. No one else ever will. No one else ever could love you as fully, as much, as well, and as truly as Jesus. No one else has. No one else could stoop lower, give up more, suffer more, or love us more deeply than Jesus has in his incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. The greatest gift ever given, the greatest gift ever possible is the gift of Jesus Christ for you and for me. If you remember back to earlier sessions out of Luke, we've talked about the startled fear both of Zechariah and Mary when Gabriel appeared suddenly before them, his angelic presence appearing as it were out of nowhere. And here as an angel messenger, he appears suddenly to these poor shepherds as well, these men working the night shift on the hills outside Bethlehem at verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. The hills would have been dark outside Bethlehem, and not only does this otherworldly being suddenly address these poor shepherds, but he does so with a visible glory around him. And 
and them. And this appears to be the very glory of God, the Shekinah glory lighting up the hillsides. And just as Gabriel said to Zechariah and Mary, this angel now says to the shepherds, don't be afraid. And then he tells them why. He gives them the good news at verse 10. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you or for you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. The good news to calm their troubled hearts was this. For you a Savior. Christ the Lord. Messiah, this long-waited, promised Savior, Yahweh said would come, has come. He's here, and he's here for you. I love that this first announcement of Jesus' birth comes to the lowliest. If Christ the Lord came for those lowly shepherds, the least in the socioeconomic strata of their day, I'll bet there's a good chance that he came for you and me too. Friends, Jesus is still coming for the lowly, for the downtrodden, for the ones burdened by their own sins or by the sins and oppression of others. Luke 4, verses 18 and 19 speak of Jesus in his own town of Nazareth when he went to the synagogue in which he'd grown up, when he spoke to the family and friends who had known him since his infancy, this anointed one, which is what Messiah or Christ means, Christ the Lord, read from Isaiah 61 to say that he has come to proclaim good news to the poor because in the Messiah now you are rich or he proclaimed liberty to captives, your sins and the oppression of others will be lifted. He proclaimed sight to the blind that would be both moral and physical blindness would be healed by the one who declared himself the light of the world. And he came to declare liberty to the oppressed, those oppressed by their own choices or the choices of others. To the shepherds, to anyone who will humble themselves before God, a Savior has been born. Well, the angel tells the shepherds how they could identify this infant Savior at verse 12, A baby would be wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, swaddling clothes were not the unusual element here. Those are simply the common way of taking care of a newborn infant. In fact, if you go to a hospital today and see them wrap up cuddly and tight the little infant in the infant blankets, that's simply what they were doing with Jesus. The unusual element was that the infant would be lying in an animal trough. In the city of Bethlehem, the name of which means the house of bread, the one who will later declare himself to be the bread of life lies in a food trough. Isn't that picturesque and memorable? Verse 13, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, what a sight on those hills this must have been. Heaven visited earth, primarily in the incarnation, that's the important part, but also here, those angels from the courts of heaven, fresh from the presence of the Father, visited earth to continue doing what they were doing in heaven, 
praising God, worshiping God, and declaring His greatness. Glory to God. And particularly now, glory to God because Christ the Lord, our Savior, has come. What an unforgettable sight and night. You know, Luke loves to show God raising up the lowly. The shepherds were the first public witnesses to Jesus' arrival. And of course, later, near the end of Luke, at Jesus' resurrection in Luke 24, it would be women who were the first to declare his resurrection. Luke is a very inclusive gospel author. Verse 17 here in our text, it says, When the shepherds saw it, they made known the saying that he had been that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. You see, the shepherds went and saw the Savior in the manger. They saw him with their eyes. They saw the one the angel had spoken of. Maybe Luke spoke to one of those shepherds or to one of their children because there would have still been many alive from the time of Jesus' birth and later years of ministry. Perhaps when Luke came back, he actually interviewed one of the shepherds who saw the glory of God light up the hills that night and Christ the Lord born there in his infancy lying in that manger. Or perhaps one of those shepherds had told in rapt descriptions that tale to his children. Perhaps it was his children that Luke spoke to. We don't know, but we have a first-hand account there. Some of the flocks and the sheep from around Bethlehem were in fact used for the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem. Now we don't know this for sure, but if the flocks the shepherds were caring for were part of the temple flock, then the same shepherds who looked over the sheep bound to be sacrificed for the sins of the nation were the same ones looking over the Lamb of God, who would, a mere three decades and change later, be slain in place of the lambs for the sins of the world. Of course, John in his gospel would tell us that Jesus came as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Well, having seen Christ the Lord, they made him known. They were so excited, they couldn't contain their joy, and they couldn't keep the good news of great joy to themselves. They had to go out and tell others. After centuries of waiting for God, God had made good on his promise to send the Son of David, the Son of Man, Christ the Lord, the Savior of the world. They couldn't wait to tell everyone they saw this good news. You know, I find it interesting in our circles today, that you and I often find talking to others about Christ difficult, do we not? Do we not even squirm in our seats when we talk about evangelizing or sharing the gospel with others who have not yet embraced Christ as Lord? Now, sometimes we may be aware of some animus others already have to the gospel. We know there's some hostility, and so we're wary of that. And, of course, we desperately want to avoid being seen as deficient or out of the mainstream in our culture, and certainly talking to others about Christ may seem the worst faux pas imaginable in some circles. And to that I simply think, and I'd say here, we simply need to get over that. 
we need to get over making much of ourselves and worrying about ourselves instead of making much of Christ and being concerned for the eternal status of the individuals we're interacting with. You know, sometimes we feel insecure in our own knowledge of the Bible. In other words, someone may ask me questions that I simply don't have answers to. But really, if you've met Christ, if you've seen him, if you've received him by faith, you can do the same thing these shepherds did. You can simply tell others what you have heard and what you have seen. You can bear witness to Christ the Lord, your Savior, and potentially theirs in the same way this group of men did. You have a testimony if you know Christ. And by the way, if someone asks you a question, and it's a genuine question that they want answered, if you don't know it in that moment, you can tell them that. But tell them you'll be glad to get back with them after you look up an answer and schedule a time to do that. Well, God declared the arrival of Christ the Lord, the Savior of the world, to those poor shepherds. Those shepherds went to see Jesus, the Christ, for themselves. Then they went out to make him known to others. And friends, really, we need to do the same. We have a Savior. We have a message of good news that everyone we meet needs. If we find ourselves slow to speak to others about Christ, it may also be because other things, other idols, have displaced him. You know, the church at Laodicea was addressed by Jesus in Revelation chapter 3. They're the last church Jesus addresses in a series of seven letters to seven different churches in seven different cities. And to that church at Laodicea, he informs them that they had traded the true gold of the spiritual riches that Christ meant them to have for what was in fact fool's gold. You see, they mistook the wealth of the world for the wealth of Christ. They are not the same thing. We often do the same thing. When we savor Christ, when we consider Jesus, God of very God, is in himself, eternal, omnipotent, and good beyond all our understanding of those terms, then we begin to grasp that Christ the Lord is, Christ the Lord has within himself, every good gift, everything worthy of praise, and therefore everything worth having and living for. Friends, we don't need PhDs. We don't need advanced degrees to know the value of Christ or to be a faithful witness to the glories of Christ. We simply have to personally experience his goodness and the gift of life as those poor shepherds did. Paul says this in Romans six twenty three: The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus the Lord. That was true at the incarnation, and that's true today. The wages of sin is death. They'll kill us now and forever. The free gift of God at Christmas and always is eternal life through Christ Jesus the Lord. If you haven't personally met Jesus as your Savior, what a perfect time to do so, to accept him, to embrace him, not as this eternal infant in a manger, but as Christ the Lord, Savior and King. And friends, we're going to move to a time of worship. At this conclusion, we have the opportunity to join the heavenly host in raising our voices to give God his due in thanking him for the greatest gift of all, Christ the Lord.